I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles at this time to Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel is an Old Testament book. He's considered to be one of the prophets and therefore is listed among the prophets. If you can find the lengthy book of Ezekiel, just keep turning to the right and you'll find the book of Daniel. Actually, it's page 1385, 1385 in your pew Bibles. And we are looking this morning at Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And we're in the midst of a series on the book of Daniel, and uh, we'll actually be completing this series quite soon. And this morning we look at another vision uh, that was given to Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. So what we have here again is a vision, really a vision of the future. And we'll read about that vision first, and then you'll find that there's an explanation to the vision as well. So let's look at God's word. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. That was the vision we read about in Daniel 7. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south, No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, His large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, And it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host took away the daily sacrifices from him. And the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, 
And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, <clears throat> was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I invite you to keep your Bibles open. It may be a little helpful as we go through um, a text that can be awfully confusing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, um, I don't know, it probably had something to do with COVID, but last year, I don't remember ever getting a calendar. Usually I get all sorts of calendars in the mail, and last year I just didn't have one hanging on the wall behind my desk, and I always had to open my computer just to figure out the date. Well, this week, this past week, I've received two calendars in two days, so people are sending out calendars once again. 
And uh, I like calendars because I can kind of look ahead and, and see what's coming, and there's sort of a rhythm to the year, right? You see what birthdays are coming up and what celebrations to look forward to. You see the holidays, Valentine's Day, and then you have Easter, and then Memorial Day, and Fourth of July, and all of those times. You can kind of predict what's coming in the year, and there's a rhythm to it. There's, there's sort of a comfort for me in and being able to look at what's ahead, being able to look at the calendar. Not so for Daniel. That's not the case for Daniel. Because what Daniel receives in the text that we just read is pretty much a calendar for the future, what's going to come in the future. But Daniel's not comforted by what he sees or by what he hears whatsoever. In fact, Daniel, we're told, is appalled. Daniel gets sick. Daniel is stuck lying in his room for days. And the question I think we have to ask, therefore, is why? Why that kind of reaction to simply being handed a calendar, simply being handed a look at the future? Well, for one, there's plenty here to be appalled by, right? especially when we begin to put the pieces together, the puzzle together, and we begin to see what this story is that we're being told. This is really the story of Hanukkah. Uh, it's interesting in our days of political correctness, these days whenever someone might say to you or you might say, Merry Christmas, there's likely to hear the next phrase from somebody else or from yourself, right? Is Happy Hanukkah. We want to include everyone. But I always wonder, do people today really understand what's at the root of either of those holidays? I mean, do people understand what's at the root of the Christian story of Christmas? And do people really understand the history of Hanukkah? Well, here in Daniel chapter 8, we have the history of, of Hanukkah. What happens here is an angel comes to Daniel and he begins to tell him what his vision is all about. And he says, Daniel, this vision is, is about the future and it's about future kingdoms that are to come. The ram with the two horns, that, that ram represents the kingdom that will follow the Babylonian kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. One of the horns is longer than the other because the Persians happen to outlast the Medes by, by quite a while. And then there's going to be another kingdom after that. So the Medes and the Persians, they're going to sort of fade into history. And then the Greeks are going to come along. They're the goat. And that goat's got a prominent horn sticking out of his head. And that horn is the first king. The, we know him as Alexander the Great. Everyone knows Alexander the Great. But even Alexander's king didn't, or kingdom did not last forever, did it? It was divided uh, between four of his generals, these other four um, horns that we read about. And actually, out of one of those kingdoms came another little king, um, really an apostor to the throne. His name was Antiochus, or Antiochus, depends how you want to pronounce it, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, the appearing of God. That's who Antiochus was. And Antiochus was pretty much a head case. And he had it out for the Jews in particular. You can read about it in your history books. 
But remember what we said earlier in this series about Nebuchadnezzar, how when Nebuchadnezzar would take over a people or a land or a nation, he would pretty much allow them to go on worshiping whatever gods they were worshiping in the past, as long as they also showed some loyalty to the king and the kingdom by worshiping his gods also. Nebuchadnezzar was pretty loose on that sort of thing. Antiochus was just the opposite. Antiochus wanted to force everyone to worship his gods and to become Greek in culture like he was a Greek. His, his idea was to homogenize the whole kingdom by making everyone like himself. And so what he did was he began to ban, especially for the Jews, all of their religious practices. And he butchered families for circumcising their children or simply for observing, observing the Sabbath day. He banned offerings in the sacrifices. The offerings in the temple stopped for a long period of time. And what he did there was he actually defiled the altar of Yahweh by sacrificing pigs on the altar. You can imagine how well that went over. And then he actually set up another altar in the Holy of Holies to his own god, to his Greek god, the god of Zeus. This all continued for quite a long time until the Maccabees revolted under Judas Maccabeus, he's referred to, and the temple was finally again cleansed and it was rededicated about 165 B.C. That's the story that we are told here in Daniel chapter 8. We're also told the time frame. It says that there were 2,300 or 2,300 evenings and mornings. It's not always, we don't know exactly how to understand that, but it probably refers to the, or the, the consecutive sacrifices that took place in the temple in that entire time period. Sacrifices took place every day, morning and evening, morning and evening. So 2,300 sacrifices would be a time period of about half of that, 1,150 days, which was about the same time period as, as Antiochus's desecration of the altar and of the temple and the time when Judas Maccabeus reinstituted things. And so Hanukkah is really the celebration of that restoration or that rededication of the temple after this long period of struggle with Antiochus. And his goal was really to wipe Judaism off the map. So Daniel sees this vision of what is to come. He sees the whole story of Hanukkah before him. And so there's plenty here to be appalled about, right? And yet, I don't know that that's everything that he's appalled by. Because we also have to think for a moment where Daniel is when he hears and when he receives this vision and hears its meaning. Where is he? He's in Babylon. He's in exile. And when is he in exile? Or where in the exile is he? It might be a better way to ask it. We read in chapter 9 that Daniel was actually aware of Jeremiah's prophecy 
that the captivity in Babylon would only last 70 years, and then they would return home. Daniel is nearing the end of that time period. And so what he has in mind is that sometime in the coming years, he and his people will be returning home. They'll be returning back to the beautiful land. And you can imagine that in Daniel's mind, he's also thinking, and maybe this will be the time when the kingdom of God will come. God will bring us back to the land, and then he will come and live among us just as he promised. And he will, live the, he will lift the nation of Israel up above all of the other nations. And the mountain of Zion will stand taller than all the other mountains in the world. And all the nations will finally come, and they will worship Yahweh at his mountain. Daniel's thinking, this is near, this is coming. He's waiting on tiptoe. And then he gets this vision. And what he hears is, Daniel, no. The kingdom isn't coming at all. In fact, there are other kingdoms that are coming. The Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and so on and so forth. And it's not just those kingdoms, but it's more suffering. It's more suffering for God's people. Your story isn't finished. The suffering isn't finished. There's more to come. Daniel. And we begin to see why Daniel just might be sick. Why he might be distressed. Can he even think about bracing himself for more of the same? It is distressing. But friends, even amid that hard news, there is some good news here in this text as well. There's some good news about the future too. Let's try and look at that. Good news number one, rams and goats. Okay, rams and goats. Now, what's so good about rams and goats? Well, nothing really. I'm not a farmer, I don't know. There might be something good about them. But in comparison to Daniel chapter 7, they look pretty good. What did you find in Daniel chapter 7? Who were the enemies of God's people there? They were, they were beasts. They were wild animals that threatened God's people. What we have in Daniel chapter 8 is livestock, farm animals, barnyard animals, sheep and goats. And on the one hand, they come off in this text, they appear in this text as fearsome, menacing creatures, and they charge to the east and the west and the south and the north, conquering lands and nations and peoples. But then you note in verse 4 what it says there. It says that no other animal could stand against them. No other animal could stand against them. In other words, they're just small potatoes. They're no match for the God who sits on the throne of the universe. Next to him, they are sweaters and cheese. They are livestock. They rage for a moment, and then they fade like a breath. They're temporary, like the snow on your windshield that you brush away, and it's gone. They are mortal. They're made of the stuff of this world. And like all the stuff of this world, they deteriorate and they're gone. 
They have no ultimate power over God's people. Friends, our world always seems to lift up the goats and the sheep and put them on a pedestal to where they come off as being such menacing creatures to us. Things are always presented to us as if, as if they're eternal and everlasting and we ought to be afraid of them. When was the last time you looked at a new a, or a used car? You were thinking about buying it and the person showing it to you said, you know, this engine is bulletproof. What does that mean? It's going to last forever. Or you're walking through a house thinking about buying and they they hit the wall and they say, you know, they don't build them like they don't build them like this anymore, right? When they built this one it was built to last what? Forever. Forever. When I was in college, I sold shoes to help, um, to help me pay for school. And um, in the shoe store, <clears throat> we sold a certain brand. I don't think we even put them up on the wall because they were too expensive to carry an inventory, at least at that time. They were called Allen Edmonds Shoes. They make them right up here in Port Washington. So we would sell them out of the catalog. Um, as salespeople, we couldn't even buy them. Uh, everything else was half off, but Allen Edmonds, we couldn't buy. They had a slogan about Allen Edmonds shoes. They were called the shoe bank. The shoe bank. In other words, if you put money into their shoes, it was like you were gaining interest, right? They weren't going to deteriorate at all. Well, a couple of years ago, I walked into a, a shoe store and they, were, they had a sale on Allen Edmonds shoes. They weren't going to carry their line anymore. It was a great sale. I could actually afford a pair. I thought, I got to do this, right? The shoe bank. I bought a pair. A couple of weeks ago, I was looking at them. They're all scuffed up. The leather's starting to, you know, to grind to a halt. My, I walk kind of weird, so my, my heels, they just, they just start to wear away. Right here on the outside first, same thing happening with the Allen Edmonds. They're not lasting forever. They're just sheep and goats. They're just sheep and goats. When we begin to believe that the sheep and the goats are eternal, that they're going to last forever, what begins to happen? What's our response? Our response is we become intimidated by them because they become larger than life. One of the main tactics of the evil one in this world is the tactic of intimidation. Intimidating God's people into doing things that God instructs us not to do. Intimidation, what is it? Well, it's like tomorrow morning you've got to get on the bus and go to school. And so you get on your school bus and you start walking your way to the back of the bus. You're looking for a seat. And there's an open seat right next to a little boy or a little girl that you've known most of your life. And you could sit right next to them. And as a baptized child of God, you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you that that's the place you need to sit. But you also know something about that other little boy or little girl. And that is that they're a little strange. Some kids in your class call them geeks. They call them other names as well. And you think, 
you know, I like this person and I really want to sit there, but if I sit there, then pretty soon they're going to call me those same names. And you're intimidated. You're intimidated. And you walk past. And you sit somewhere else where you think it'll be better for you and your reputation. Friends, that's intimidation. And that's one of the chief tactics of the evil one. And what the book of Daniel is saying is, it's just sheep and goats. Go out the back door, open the barn, that's where you'll find them. You shouldn't be intimidated by these creatures. They're just sheep and goats. And that's all these kings are. People of Israel, that's all these kings are. Second piece of good news here is simply God's covenant love. You say, well, where do we see God's covenant love in this text? It, it seems to tell just the opposite. Well, think about what's written here. We, we read a little history here, right? We find Alexander the Great in this text. Everybody knows Alexander the Great, right? If you ever took a, a class in Western Civ, you learned about Alexander the Great. He was one of the pivotal men in the history of the world. Who gets the most ink in this text? Is it Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great is a horn on a goat, and it breaks, and he's gone. The one who gets more ink is a little figure by the name of Antiochus IV. As far as history is concerned, he's a blip on the radar screen. He's a two-bit dictator, a dime-a-dozen dictator. Even if you were listening in history class, you probably still would not have heard of Antiochus. But here in Daniel 8, he's the man... He's the little horn that gets all the attention. He's the main antagonist to God's throne, to God's kingdom. His reign has the angels themselves asking one another, how long will this go on? How long will this go on? And by the way, just a footnote, we read in the text that this vision is about the end, right? And our minds sometimes go, this is, this is about the end of history. <clears throat> the end is actually the answer to that question. How long will this go on? How long will the persecution of Antiochus go on? That's the end that we're reading about. The end of that persecution. But the point here is, friends, that <clears throat> Alexander is just a footnote. Alexander the Great is just a footnote in this text. The main feature is Antiochus. Why? Well, it's because Daniel 8 is not a history textbook. It's a love letter. The Bible is about God's people, God's covenant people, the people that he has pledged himself to. I will be your God. You will be my people. And in this text, we find out that all of those metaphors of the prophets are actually true. That this God, Yahweh, is the husband of Judah. He is the father of Israel. 
who I took by the hand and I taught him how to walk. I am their father. These are my people. That's why there's so much ink spilt about this one little two-bit ruler who persecutes the people of God. And what God is saying is when you persecute my people, you persecute me. I love my people. I'm committed to my people. And friends, that is our hope. That is our only hope. That's the good news among all the bad news. But then we have to ask, okay, so if all of that good news is really true, I mean, if God really is in control of history, right, and the great kingdoms of this world are nothing more than sheep and goats in his eyes, and if this God is fiercely jealous for his own people, then why? Why is Daniel given this vision of just more of the same ahead? More suffering. Why does this calendar tell the same old story? That's the question we have to ask. It's a great question. The answer is in verse 12. Why does that little horn have so much success? Why is he allowed to put an end to the sacrifices in the temple? Why is he allowed to defile God's house? Why can he set himself up as God and the one to be worshipped, the only one to be worshipped? Why and how can he destroy the truth? How can he defeat the hosts or the armies of God's saints? Why is he allowed to do all of that? And notice the word I used, he is allowed to do that. That's what we're told in verse 12. These things were given over to the little horn. They were given over to him. He was allowed to do this. Who allowed him to do this? God. Why? Why is he allowed to do this? Again, verse 12, because of rebellion. Because of transgression, the breaking of God's will, his commands, because of sin, sin against God. Friends, the vision that Daniel sees here, this vision of the future, it's merely a, a repeat of everything we read and talked about when we talked about 2 Kings 24 and 25. Israel was in exile. Why? Because Babylon was such a strong nation? No. They were in exile because God put them in exile. Again, we read it in the second verse, the very second verse of the book of Daniel. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did this. He delivered Jehoiakim along with some of the articles from the temple of God. The temple of God was defiled already by Nebuchadnezzar. This is why Daniel's in Babylon. This is why his people are in exile, because they've sinned, and God sent them 
away to a foreign land to punish them. This is why the temple is desecrated. This is why God's own name and reputation have been soiled. It's because of the sin of Israel. And now, friends, what Daniel lays his eyes on when he's handed this calendar by Gabriel, what he lays his eyes on is that the future tells the same story as the past. The future tells the same story. Daniel, you will go back to Israel. You will go back to the land, and the temple will be reconstituted. And then what's going to happen? Well, the people are going to sin again. And the temple will be taken away again. And it will be defiled and destroyed. And the worship of the living God will stop, will cease. This is what the future holds, Daniel. Exactly what the past held. It's no wonder that Daniel is appalled. It's no wonder that he's sick. What's ahead is not the kingdom of God. What's ahead is the same old thing. The same old cycle being repeated again and again and again. And friends, what Daniel begins to recognize here is that the enemy, the real enemy in this text, is not the enemy without. It's not all the kings of the surrounding nations. The real enemy to be feared in this text is right here. It's the enemy of the human heart, the enemy of our sinful nature that keeps doing the same old thing. And so God has to respond by punishing his people once again, calling them back, and then they fall into sin again and again. So Daniel's discouraged. And I don't know about you, friends. I would guess you're in the same camp. I know that I am. I often get discouraged at times like this. Because even today, it seems like we're stuck in that same old cycle. That our hearts really haven't changed a whole lot. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter? Chapter 3, he said this. He said, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound like anyone you know? 
Sounds like me, for one. And it sounds like you, too. And when I think about that, it's easy to get stuck, like Daniel. It's easy to get sick and just lay down and quit. But then I look at our text again and I see that Daniel really isn't stuck. He's a little sick, yes. But then he gets up. This is what we read. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I got up and went about the king's business. Ian Duguid points out that that phrase is intentionally ambiguous. In other words, what king's business did he go about? Which king? The chapter is full of kings. And, and then you recognize that at the end of chapter 7, we're told about this king who rules over all kings, the ultimate king, the king who will sit on a throne one day, and that throne will be everlasting. It will be eternal. No end to that throne. And then I think we begin to see that maybe, just maybe, Daniel began to discern that there is another king who sits above all of these goats and rams, all of these temporary rulers, and that's the king's business. That's the king whose business I will be about. That takes discernment. Discerning who is the true king and who are the imposters. Who is the real king, the eternal king, and who are the goats and the rams? Daniel served the true king. And friends, it's this discernment that you and I have to learn as well. This kind of discernment that the text teaches us. We have to remember and be able to see the goats and the rams for what they really are. Those little farm animals in the wrong context can seem fearsome and unassailable. But what in the end in this account is the most fearsome enemy of all? It's the human heart. And what God's word tells us here and throughout the book is even that biggest enemy of all, my sinful nature. Compared to God, it's just a barnyard animal. And so the Son of God himself came into this world and he climbed up on a cross and he defeated that sheep and that goat as well. Even that enemy has nothing, is nothing compared to God. And what that does for us, my friends, 
is it frees us up. It frees us up to be about the king's business, right? Because if we finally understand that the one thing, the sinful heart that's holding us back, that one thing has also been defeated in Jesus Christ, then we recognize that that enemy cannot defeat us and none of the other goats and sheep can as well. None of them can. They're just old shoes. They're just old shoes. And so now we are free. We're free to be lovers of God instead of lovers of self. Lovers of neighbors instead of lovers of self. We're free to be generous with our money instead of lovers of money. We're free to boast in God, not in ourselves. We're free to be humble, not proud. We're free to be grateful. We're free to obey our parents. We're free to be holy and pure. And we're free to sit on the bus wherever we are needed, not where we need to. We are free. In Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed from all the sheep and all the goats. And we are loyal only to one king, and that is the true king who will sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. That's Daniel 8. Let's pray. Lord God, without you we are condemned. to a life in which history repeats itself over and over and over. We're condemned to a life of giving in, of, of being intimidated, of seeing the powers of this world, the powers around us, no matter who or what they are, as being far greater than they really are. But Lord, in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid the punishment for all of my sins and all of the sins of this congregation, all of the sins of your people throughout the world, throughout time and history. You have freed us all. You have freed us from the gods and the kings and the powers of this world. You have exposed them for what they are, mere barnyard animals, nothing to be afraid of, and you have shown us that you are the true God, the only God worthy of our worship. And so fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Make our bodies your temples, holy and pure, a place where God himself dwells, and a place that cannot be desecrated any longer. We are your holy people living in this world. Lord, send us back into that world to sing our praises to our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.